Joseph's life has taken an amazing turn in Genesis chapter 41. As now he is second in command over all of Egypt and he is in charge of all the grain and all that would happen within the land that nothing would be outside of his control is what Pharaoh has told him. Quite a bit of time now has passed by as we move into chapter 42 because Genesis 42 tells us that the famine is severe. And so the first seven years of plenty now have passed by. And now we're in that second window where now things are very difficult. And it's not only in Egypt, but in other parts of the world, it is including in Canaan where the famine is severe. Which means now we're setting Joseph to be around 38, 39 years old at this point. We're moving him into nearly a 40 at this point as he now is executor over all this grain as people now come to him. And we're told now what is going on back in Canaan. We've left that scene for quite a while. What is happening with Jacob, Joseph's father, and what is happening with the brothers? And we're told at the beginning of chapter 42 that they are suffering from the famine as well. And Jacob basically tells his sons, what are you guys still doing here? I hear that Egypt has grain for sale and you need to go down there. And I find that verse four is a fascinating declaration that is made here. Because what we're going to notice from time to time now is that Jacob knows what his sons have done. And you'll notice that in verse four. Jacob doesn't send Benjamin. Why? He says, because he feared that harm might happen to him. Now, why would you think that would happen, Jacob? It's not like that Benjamin is 10 years old or 17 years old, as sometimes that we envision him to be. He's in his 30s by now. He's a fine adult young man at this point. And Jacob says, he's not going with you because I'm afraid of what's going to happen. We'll see Jacob express that a few more times as we go through this, that Jacob is aware either by the confession of his sons or by just putting two and two together that he understands that that the brothers are are the cause of his loss of his son. And so Jacob will not let Benjamin go. At all costs, there is no way that Benjamin is going to go with him. So he sends the ten oldest sons to go down to Egypt to buy grain. And you notice then from verses 6 through 9 something interesting because Joseph is the one who is not over, only overseeing all of this in the distribution of the grain. It seems that he's the one that actually is there. It's not like he has someone doing the work for him. He's there at As people come into Egypt and is the one from whom people buy grain. And here come his ten brothers. And the text tells us that they don't recognize Joseph. And why would they? They believe that Joseph is dead. It's been over 20 years. It has been over 20 years since this event has happened where they've sold Joseph away into slavery. Over 20 years has passed by. They believe Joseph is dead. And nor would they ever expect Joseph to be in command in Egypt. And he looks like an Egyptian. He's now adopted all the Egyptian culture that he's there. Married an Egyptian wife, two Egyptian children. He is full Egypt at this point. He doesn't look like a Hebrew at all. And as the brothers come in, it says that they bow down to Joseph. Joseph remembers that dream that he had had over 20 years ago about how his brothers were going to bow down to him. But it is fascinating that Joseph does not say, hey, guys, it's me. 
Remember me from 20 years ago? I'm your brother that you sold into slavery. Here I am and I'm here to save you and help you. The brothers come and bow down and they offered that they want to buy grain like everybody else. And I want you to observe that the text tells us in verse 7 that he spoke to them harshly. Does that remind you of something back in chapter 37? Remember in chapter 37, the brothers could not speak peaceably with Joseph. And now Joseph speaks harshly to his brothers and says, you're not here to buy grain. You're here to spy out the land. You're here to see our weaknesses so that you can overthrow us. I know exactly who you are. You are spies. And he throws them in jail for three days. I feel like I probably would have done that. (laughs) You stinking brothers. Speaks harshly to us as you want a taste of what it was like. Just a little taste of what my life has been like. And he puts them in prison. Speaks to them harshly and lets them stay there. After the three days, Joseph pulls them out and says, here's what I'm going to do. To prove that you are not spies and your story is correct about you having another brother who did not come. I'm going to allow you to go back and buy your grain. But you cannot come back and buy grain or have any assistance whatsoever unless you bring him back. Because if you do not bring back that younger brother, then I know you are spies and you will be killed. You will not make it. And so, in the midst of him telling them that, you'll notice the text tells us in verse 21, it says, They begin to speak to one another and they say, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered and said, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood and they did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them they think he's just an Egyptian and they start now talking amongst themselves this is now the guilt of what we've done 20 years ago they sold their brother into slavery and they think he's dead and now something goes bad they're thrown in prison the first thing they think of is this is because of Joseph you guys and Reuben chimes in and goes I told you to leave him alone I told you not to do harm to him which is what we read happened in chapter 37 Reuben's trying to spare his life And notice the description that's given when the brothers say, and we heard his cries and pleads and we didn't listen. That's what we didn't catch in chapter 37 is here's Joseph in the pit yelling at his brothers. Let me out. Let me out. Let me out. And remember, we read that they sat down and ate lunch and didn't care. And now they're remembering all of that. Reuben says, I told you not to do anything about that. And Joseph apparently didn't know anything like that. And you get that because of the very next verse. He's going to keep one of his brothers, but does he choose to keep the oldest and send the others back? Instead of keeping Reuben, Reuben is the one who tried to preserve him. So he goes next in line and says, I'll keep Simeon. Simeon is now thrown into prison and he sends the other brothers away. He allows them to buy their grain. And so they're loaded up with the donkeys with all their grain. But he does something interesting. He puts all their money back in their bags. Fills it with grain. But all the money that they had used to buy the grain, Joseph has all that money put back in. And sends them back. 
Well, on the way back, as they're going back to Canaan, one of the brothers pulls out some food to begin to start feeding the donkey and opens that satchel and realizes all the money is still in there. And they go, what is going on? What is God trying to do to us? How can all the money still be in here? And they are afraid because it's going to look like they've stolen from Egypt. And so they get back to Jacob and they tell Jacob all that has happened. All that has just transpired and why Simeon is not with them and how they encountered this man down there in Egypt who had done all these things to him. And throughout all that scene, Joseph does not reveal himself to his brothers at all. Reuben says, we need to go back to be able to buy more grain and to be able to release Simeon. And Jacob says, I'll have no part of that. You are not taking Benjamin. He even uses the language and says, basically, he's my only one. Verse 38 of chapter 42, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. And we get to chapter 43 and apparently more time has gone by. Simeon is rotting in prison with Joseph. Jacob will not relent. He is not giving up Benjamin. In chapter 43, Jacob says, we're out of food. You need to go back and buy more. And the brothers say, the man was very firm down there and said, if we don't bring Benjamin with us, that he's not going to sell us anything. And Jacob kind of argues with them and just says, what have you done to me? Why did you tell them about me and the youngest one? What are you doing? Listen, we didn't know that they were going to do this. We didn't know that he's going to call us out of spies. We just told them the truth. And we didn't know he was going to turn around and say, now you got to bring the youngest one back. And so they were arguing with Jacob and says, we've got to go get some grain. And the most amazing of people steps up in chapter 43. It is Judah who stands up and says, I will vouch for his life. There is no way anything is going to happen to him. Now, the reason why that is shocking is because it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery. When he is in the pit and the Israelites come along, it is Judah who says, hey, let's make some money on the guy instead of killing him. Let's sell him instead. Judah is the one who steps up before the family and says to Jacob, I will bring him back. And Jacob says, Okay, because we're going to die anyway if we don't go get some grain. And so now, 11 brothers begin the journey back to Egypt. And we're told then something fairly interesting. As they come into Egypt, rather than going to the place they were before to be able to buy the grain, this time they are directed to Joseph's house. And this causes them to have all the more fear because... When they had left, it looked like they were thieves. They had all the money and the grain. And they began to talk about themselves and think, we are in big trouble. That's why they're making us go to Joseph's house. He's going to do something awful to us because it looks like we're thieves. And so they first encounter the steward of the house. And they just pour out the whole story right to him. We didn't steal. We paid you. We don't know how the money got back in our bag. And the steward says, don't worry, you did pay us. That kind of throws the brothers off. How is that possible? He says, what are we doing here? And so they go into Joseph's house. And Simeon is released from prison and rejoins his brothers. 
And then, as they're seated there waiting, here comes Joseph now finally into the house and into the room. And all the eleven brothers bow down to Joseph again. Just as the dream had said, back in Genesis 37, it happens again. They bow down before Joseph. And Joseph now asks about the father. Has your father doing well? Here is Joseph wanting to know what's happened back home. Is your father doing well? Is he still alive? Yes, he's still alive. He's doing well. We've come to buy grain. And then in verse 29 of chapter 43, Joseph sees Benjamin and says, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph cannot withhold his compassion and emotion anymore. But rather than expressing himself and revealing himself, he leaves the room and he weeps for a while and then regains his composure and comes back out as ruler over Egypt and continues his discussion with these brothers. And now Joseph offers, I think, a fairly interesting test. I believe in these three chapters we are seeing quite a few tests coming from Joseph's hand. This one is fairly interesting. Joseph now has the brother sit down for a feast. I think it's fascinating that he chooses to line them up in order of oldest to youngest. I think if I were the brothers, I'd be like, well, how did he know that? (laughs) From oldest to youngest, there they sit. But to the youngest Benjamin... He gives five times as much food and feasting as the other brothers. And I submit to you that he does that because the last time he saw these brothers, they hated Joseph because of the favoritism that had been shown to Joseph. And so Joseph is going to learn, do you treat Benjamin the same way that you treat me? And so you see Joseph go over the top with Benjamin five times as much. Can you imagine sitting at a table and you had a pile of food and this is the same, this is the same, ten plates down. And then this guy's got not just a little bit more, five times, got five plates right there. Everybody look at that and go, whoa, he's got a pile of food. It's piled up over overwhelming. But the end of chapter 43 says they didn't say a word or complain about It says that they feasted and made merry. Nobody's complaining. It's not like what happened in chapter 37. Oh, there's Joseph, dreamer, coat of many colors. We don't like this guy and all the favoritism. They don't do that with Benjamin. Interesting. But Joseph's not done. In chapter 44, he now allows them to go back with the grain. And so the brothers buy the grain Joseph does the same thing. He puts all the money back in their bags again. But he adds a little wrinkle this time. He tells the steward, he says, as they pack up to go, stick my silver cup in the youngest bag. And then when they've gone on down the road, I want you to catch up to them and say that whoever has stolen the cup is going to be now a slave to me forever. And so that's exactly what happens. They go on their way. And these Egyptians now catch up to him and said, How dare you? How dare you take our favor and compassion and goodness as a license to steal? Why would you do something like that? And the brother's like, what are you talking about? We haven't stolen. Yes, you have stolen. One of you has taken a silver cup. And you can imagine the brothers are like, we didn't steal anything. Yeah, check our bags. It's going to be fine. We didn't do anything. And so they begin opening the bags one by one. And guess whose bag has the silver cup? Benjamin. 
And the soldiers say, he's coming back with us. And he's now going to be a slave to my master forevermore. And Joseph, I believe, is expecting the other ten to go, okay. (laughs) They didn't care about Joseph. Why would they care about Benjamin? They're going to leave him and let him go, and they're going to go on back their merry way. They let Joseph rot. Who knows how long Simeon's been down there? They just said, you know what, we're finally out of grain. I guess we better go back and get Simeon out of the, out of the prison. And so surely they're going to leave Benjamin. But instead, all the brothers come back to Egypt with Benjamin. And they enter into the house and they begin to plead to Joseph. And say, you cannot do this. It is going to kill our father. And Judah steps up. The one who not only had promised that he would stand in the place for Benjamin if something went wrong. It's one thing to say, it's another thing to do it. And at this moment, he steps up in chapter 44 and he retells the whole story. And he just tells them, my father, he had these two sons and one of them is dead and he's the one that's loved. And I, he, we, they would not let us come back unless I promised that he would be safe. And now you've captured him. And so instead of you taking Benjamin, take me instead. And not only is that shocking because Judah is the one who had sold Joseph off into slavery, but do you remember chapter 38, that gruesome chapter that we all kind of hated and groaned to read about the intense immorality of Judah? He's a liar. He's a covenant breaker. He's with prostitutes and adulterer and all these things. Judah is the one who pleads to Joseph and says, you let me stay here and be your slave and you let that boy go. And Joseph says, I'm not going to do that. And Judah pleads and pleads. And Joseph now finally has to reveal himself to him. And that's how chapter 44 ends and chapter 45 begins. I want to do the rest. Okay, we'll put it in the story right there. There's two great things out of this awesome story from Joseph, though. Two great things that we see God doing. And God teaching and learning and molding these people so that they will understand God's ways. Number one, God in His mercy causes us to face our guilt so that we will turn to God and change. It is something that just boils out of the text again and again. You'll notice like in chapter 44 in verse 16 when Joseph says, how could you have done this that you have stolen and I'm going to keep him? Judah in verse 16 says, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? And then listen, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. It appears to me that the guilt of these brothers' actions has been riding around with them for a very long time. It's not like this was yesterday, last month, or last year. Friends, a little more than 20 years ago, these brothers did this. 20 years And when these calamities are happening to the brothers, the first thing they think of is the guilt of what they had done. The first thing that crosses their mind is we are guilty of selling our brother and he's dead. You see that in chapter 42, 
in verse 21, where the brothers say a very similar thing. In chapter 42, in verse verse 21, they said to one another, we are guilty concerning our brother. It's been weighing upon them and it comes up again and again. And the point that I want us to consider is that God uses that. That God in His mercy will prick our hearts to get us to look at our sins. It is one of God's purposes to take these things and prick us in a way so that we will consider what we have done. Unfortunately, what we have the tendency to do is kind of blow those things off. You know, oh, well, you know, quiet the conscience, ignore those things. You know you've done something wrong. You feel guilty for your actions. You've committed a sin. And so often what we try to do is quiet the conscience and just ignore it. It's okay. I'm only him. Whatever. No big deal. But I want us to consider that the scriptures tell us that guilt is a mercy of God. Guilt is intended by God to move us in the right direction so that when something happens, it will be like, you're right, I've got to deal with my sin. I've got to deal with my error. I've got to do something about what I've done. And true guilt then really is the mercy of God because it's to bring the guilty to seek forgiveness and to cause us to seek repentance I want you to notice that is the terminology that the Apostle Paul used to the Corinthians in chapter uh, chapter 7 and verse 9, where he says, Now I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed. God wants this to happen this way. It's not just, oh, you know, I'm sorry you feel bad, but I want something to happen with the guilt, with the grieving that goes on with the sin. God wants something to occur with that so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you what a desire to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice in every way you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. Here is what Paul writes to them and says, I'm glad that there was a grieving. I'm glad that there was guilt because that's supposed to move you to repentance. You're not supposed to be nagged with the guilt. So you just quiet it over and bulldoze it over and go, oh, well, It's supposed to move us. And that's why Paul writes with joy to these Corinthians and says, I'm glad that it has resulted in a life change. I'm glad that it resulted in repentance. I'm glad that it resulted in a turning. And for us, it might be big sins or small sins. And I'll put that in quotes. You know, the things that are big things in life or small things that we think that we've done that are not a big deal. Maybe it's just a decision that we've made. But we need to let the mercy of God work because that's what that guilt is to do, is to move us to seek after God. And it's a scary thing when we don't let that happen because you can quiet the conscience and you can quiet the guilt. I do think there is something to be said for these brothers. That 20 years have gone by and it's still apparently right there with them. 
You know, in 20 years, you can bury a lot of baggage in your life. You can forget a lot of bad things that you've done and not call them to remembrance anymore. 20 years is a long time. And yet, this still rode around with them. And we need to allow our conscience to maintain its tenderness and purity so that when we violate God's law, when we commit sin, that that guilt does work. That it moves us to the repentance that God wants. He doesn't want us to be impervious to sin. Oh, I committed a sin, no big deal. But friends, that's what happens when we stay in our sins. You keep committing sins and you get get repetitive with those actions. You get to a point where you don't care anymore. The scriptures not only teach that, think about how many examples in the Bible we see of that. The people no longer care about the ways of God. They're no longer moved by sin. They're no longer moved by guilt. They don't care about those things anymore. And I think we must recognize that this is God's mercy and we should not ignore it. We should not set it aside that when we feel that guilt, when we recognize that we have done something wrong, to use it as the tool that God has intended to reconcile ourselves to God and do what God has called us to do. Whether it be we need to reconcile with another person, we need to apologize, right the wrong, show repentance toward them and get our lives right with God, whatever it is. We need to take that step and recognize that God has made us that way. You know, God didn't have to give us that nagging little thing within us, whatever you want to call that. But he gave us that so we could use that to get ourselves to point the right direction to God. That's number one. But number two goes right with it. The transformation that we see. And I hope we'll see transformation not only in Judah, which we'll talk about in a minute. But think about the transformation of Joseph. There is a transformation that happens here. I submit to you that what Joseph is doing is not right in the beginning. What he's doing, the brothers come in. I don't think the right reaction of godliness was to throw those boys in prison for three days. (laughs) I think there's a little letting it out right there. But what happens with Joseph is the same thing as what God does with everybody is God is pricking Joseph's heart as well and pricking him to be transformed by mercy so that he will drop that harshness. And you see that each time as the brothers encounter him, he gets a little softer and a little softer with them. No doubt some resentment had built up over that time over those brothers and certainly would have no reason to believe that they would be good people, if you will, of any kind of matter. They expect, he expects them to treat Benjamin just like he was treated. But you see a transformation in Joseph's heart. And you see it happen where not only does he begin to start treating them unkindly and harshly, but he puts the money back in the bag and sends them back. And then he has a great feast for them instead of throwing them in prison. And then he finally reveals himself to them and is weeping over that. It is moving Joseph away from that harsh behavior. That's what the mercy of God is supposed to do. 
is to move us away from that retaliation and that kind of revenge. And, and, and Judah is moved in the same way by God. In chapter 38, which is so often skipped in the story of Joseph, is everything to understanding where we stand now at this point in the story. To understand where Judah was. And Judah has made a radical transformation. He doesn't deserve to be back in the family. He doesn't deserve any of the mercy that's been extended to him for all the sins that he commits in chapter 38. Here he is redeeming himself, if you will. Here he is now able to put himself on the line to such an extent that he's willing to offer his own life. What an amazing thing that someone who starts off as the instigator of all of these sins now becomes the one who's going to try to spare his younger brother's life. There is transformation that can happen. That is a glorious hope to any person who will give their life to Christ, is that there is transformation that can happen. There is not someone who is too wicked, too evil, too awful, too bad, that God cannot transform that heart. Judah is in the depths of it. We didn't even want to talk about it. I had to like restate some things. It's such a horrible story. But look where Judah is now. What a transformation that happens because of the mercy of God. And this is what God intends, that God pricks our hearts in a way so that we will be transformed either by circumstances that happen in our lives or transformed by the actions or words of others, that God is pricking the heart. I want you to see that's exactly how the Apostle Paul described it. First, when he spoke of it for himself in being radically transformed by God, he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, in verse 16, he says, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He speaks of himself as the the foremost of sinners and, and undeserving of God's grace. But then he writes and says, I received this mercy for a reason. He saw it in a very personal, real way. It was going to be so that I could display the perfect patience of Christ to the world, he says. To take what God has done in our lives and be transformed by that mercy in a very individual, personal way. To think about what God has done for you in your life. And what will you do now for God because He's been merciful to you. And Paul said that much more broadly in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. When he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says a living sacrifice. You're going to give your bodies holy and acceptable before God. On what basis do we do that? Why would we want to give our lives to Christ? Why would we offer it up as a sacrifice? And this would be our acceptable spiritual worship before God. Why would we do that? See that line? By the mercies of God. There has to be before our eyes the mercy of God in our lives at all times. To move and allow a transformation of heart to take place. 
It is only when we see God's mercy at work in our hearts, at work in our lives, and what He is doing, that we will be transformed, that we will begin to be changed. We have to observe what God is doing and be keenly aware of that so that we can change. When you think about what has happened with these brothers, the change that's out here is God pricking the heart. And they're being changed by it. And they're seeing the mercy of God working in their lives. And here's an opportunity to do what is right. Where last time I failed and did what is wrong, but God has been gracious to me and gives me another chance. What will you do with that opportunity? Will you do it again? Oh, here's Judah's chance to do it again. I think of Judah would be like, you know, I know I promised my father I'd take care of him, but you know what? Slavery in Egypt... I want to go home. This time he steps up. What a radical change that happens in him. This time he steps in. And the ability for us to be radically transformed when we allow the mercy of God to overwhelm our lives. To see it, to recognize it, and appreciate it. Only that will allow for a change to happen in our lives. What Paul is saying there in Romans 12 and verse 1 is that the mercies of God are the basis for life transformation. You want to move to what God has called you to be. You want to be a disciple of Jesus. You want to become the person that God wants you to be and moves you to be stronger in faith. The mercies of God are the basis to be transformed by that mercy. And friends, There is no greater place to look for that mercy but then in the cross. There's no greater place to look for that than the cross. Where we, as people who are deserving of death and condemnation for our sins, had one step in and say, I will deal with the punishment. And I will be the sacrifice for their sins so that we do not have to receive what is due to us. He instead comes in. And saves us from the doom that we should have deserved. We keep the cross in mind. How can we not be moved by God's mercy? And then not be transformed to change ourselves. And how we express our worship before God. And how we speak to our God. And how we obey our God. And transformed by mercy. And how we deal with one another. To remember that God is a merciful God. That we have not received what we deserve. And it is not our place to give others what we think they deserve. Let's be moved by that mercy. You pull your song books out. And as you pull your song book out and you get yourself ready for that spot as we sing this song, I'd like for you to think of a, this question and answer to this question. What will you do with the guilt of your sins? What will you do with that voice, that conscience that cries out to you for the sins that you've committed? You have two options. The option that most people take is to try to silence it and ignore it. It doesn't exist. And just close our ears, ignore what's happened, and try to just keep living life. The other option is to see it as a mercy of God who is trying to prod us and move us and prick our hearts 
to move us in the right way, to move us back to God, to allow those things where we have fallen short to be an opportunity for radical life transformation. What will you do with the mercy of God and what will you do with the cross? Will it become your opportunity today now to turn away from your sins and decide I'm going to follow Jesus with all of my heart? Today is that opportunity. Today is the day to say, I'm not going to be weighed down by the guilt anymore. I'm filled with guilt for all of my sins. But there is Jesus standing there who can take away those sins and I need to give my life to Him. I need to serve Him and obey Him. Boy, the opportunity is great. That we no longer have to be accountable for our sins. That we no longer have to bear the guilt of all that we have done, all the sins that we have committed, all the wrongs. There is a Savior. If you'll turn away from your sins, confess Jesus to be the Son of God, and have your sins washed away, the waters of baptism, you can come up clean, guilt taken away, sins forgiven. A child of God. Won't you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?